0: All right. Welcome to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm your host, John Davidson, Senior Editor at the Federalist. And I'm joined today by my friend Chuck DeVore, who's Vice President at the Texas Public Policy Foundation here in Austin, Texas. And Chuck is joining us to discuss the situation in Ukraine. Uh, We're now a week into the Russian invasion. And Chuck has been writing um, brief daily kind of dispatch analysis Uh, of the battlefield situation in Ukraine for us at the Federalist. And the reason uh, that we asked him to do that is because of his background uh, with the US military. Chuck, first of all, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Can you give our listeners just a brief uh, rundown of your military background uh, as a basis for our discussion here?
1: Well, sure, be glad to. Uh, I guess uh, to put it one way, I'm kind of a Cold War relic. Uh, I uh, signed up for the U.S. Army in 1983 uh, and got my commission uh, through Claremont McKenna College, ROTC, in 1985 as a military intelligence officer. And so in the Army back then, uh, all of your training as an intelligence officer was predicated on uh, the Soviet Union and its allied military in the Warsaw Pact. And it was about, you know, the equipment they use and how they fight and how they train, their doctrine, et cetera. And the theory was that this is the most formidable uh, military you're going to potentially face. Anything else is less difficult than that. So, uh, you know, all of your training is going to revolve around that. And of course, um, from the onset of that training, which uh, was constantly burnished and and uh, constantly went back to over my 24 years of service in the reserve components, mostly in the National Guard, as a um, armor uh, heavy uh, mechanized infantry uh, staff officer, uh, you know, S2 deputy, uh, you know, G2, that sort of level of uh, service. Um, the the Soviet Union was kind of again the, the the emphasis, and so what's interesting to me, of course, is that. Never have I ever used this training for that worst case scenario, you know, conventional war in Europe involving the Russian army. And now Now here we are. And now here we are. and And it's kind of like, oh, wait a minute. I recognize what that is. And and I know what's going on here. And and so that's that's my background. And then kind of to add that one last thing, my degree at Claremont was in strategic studies which is all about nuclear warfare and and throw weights and circular error probable and game theory and diplomacy. And that's why I had the opportunity to be uh, the youngest Reagan appointee in the Pentagon for a brief time until someone younger was appointed. Uh, I was a special assistant for foreign affairs in the Reagan era Pentagon from 86 to 88. So, so that's the that's the background sure. that I bring to this.
0: Well, I want to talk about the strategic uh, aspect of it and nuclear theory and all that um, a little bit later. But first, let's just start with the basic um, situation on the ground. We're recording this on Thursday, the uh, March third. The invasion is about is a week old. Give, you have a piece up at the Federalist today, giving a, a rundown of the situation as it stood yesterday. But uh, tell us what's happening now and, and what the state of play is in Ukraine with the Russian invasion.
1: So it's very important to set the stage by, by having your listeners understand that clearly Russian President Vladimir Putin thought that Ukraine would immediately collapse, that they would not offer serious resistance that uh, President Zelensky would flee with his family or would be killed very early on. And so their initial uh, plan was to force a quick surrender, a quick bloodless surrender. And what they did not wager on was that Ukraine uh, has developed or perhaps always had uh, a strong national identity, a will to fight and defend itself, and that President Zelensky, this unlikely man who came to the office of president without any prior political experience, who was an entertainer, a, a media uh, entrepreneur who was known for his uh, comedic uh, uh, you know, productions, would somehow end up being uh, this generation's Winston Churchill. Uh, and, and so here we are. So the, 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 the initial problem was that Vladimir Putin invaded with insufficient forces for the task, Uh, Ukraine is a little bit bigger than the state of Texas. It's got about 46 million people, although now there's a million refugees, so maybe it's 45 million uh, that live there. And you're trying to subdue this nation of 46 million people bigger than Texas with an initial assault wave of only about 100,000 troops with another 100,000 behind them, of whom probably one third are conscripts who've only had about two and a half months of training and are 18 and 19-year-olds and were lied to that they were just going on exercises, right? So so that that's why this has turned into what appears to be uh, a, a much slower operation uh, with a lot of error, a lot of mistakes on the Russian side uh, than a lot of pundits thought would be the case.
0: Is part of that connected to what... Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin's purported political aims are in this war. In other words, they want—they don't want to lay waste to Ukraine. They—they they don't want to. Um, you know, destroy Ukrainian cities or make the cost of the war on the Ukrainian people so high that um, their political aims, which is to install a sort of puppet regime in Ukraine to have Ukraine permanently renounce NATO membership, uh, to basically demilitarize Ukraine, uh, become uh, unfeasible. So was the the thinking, and and I, I agree with you, it seems to be flawed thinking that a light uh, you know invasion with minimal dis- destruction, minimal civilian casualties, a quick capitulation by ukraine's government was the initial goal. One of the things that i 've heard from analysts um, that i 've listened to and and perhaps you can speak to this is the relative absence of fixed wing aircraft as part of the Russian initial invasion. There was helicopters, but we didn 't see the use of air power in a way that we might have expected the and the other thing was the the bulk of russian artillery and the main force of the russian army still you know not being deployed in that first wave held back in russia as as these uh, uh these detachments these uh i don't want to get my terminology wrong because i'm not a military you know these battalion, battalion tactical groups um that were not really fighting as tactical groups you would see you would see a tank you know, here without infantry, infantry without tanks, a reconnaissance group without anybody around it, it's it, it really seemed disjointed. And I wonder if, if that initial strategy of a, a light footprint in in Ukraine. That Moscow has now abandoned that, and they're they're going right. to bring in the heavy the heavier uh, weapons and uh, fixed wing aircraft
1: and and the main
0: bulk of their force. What, what
1: is well? What are your I think there's that? several things going on here. First of all, uh, I think again everything was predicated on the government immediately collapsing right. in, in in the first few hours, and uh, as they say with military operations, right? Um, uh, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Uh, we're seeing a lot of friction of war here. Uh, that having been said, there is enormous evidence that the Russian military is terribly out of practice and isn't nearly the juggernaut that people think it is. Let me give you one example of of how uh, someone like me would, would view this. Uh, when you have uh, armored vehicles operating as a team, you have tanks backed up with armored personnel carriers, uh, the armored personnel carriers are there to provide dismounted infantry support for the tanks so that the tanks can't as easily be destroyed by uh, anti-tank weapons manned by enemy infantry. They have to work as a team. If they don't work as a team, they are vulnerable separately. So imagine that you're in a Russian armored personnel carrier, and you're 100 yards behind a friendly tank, and you hear a few rounds pinging off of your vehicle. Well, if it was a vehicle composed of U.S. Army or U.S. Marine Corps personnel, The NCO would probably yell something like, "You know, action right?" The the people inside the APC would immediately dismount and they would begin this fire and maneuver that, as best I could could describe it, it would be like a football team calling audibles but never actually constantly resnapping the football. In other words, never stopping. And so, think of ten people doing three to five second rushes. Uh, achieving fire superiority over the local enemy that's threatening them and their tank and continuing to do that until the enemy is killed, driven off, or surrenders, right? And just doing it automatically like muscle memory. Now, think about it. To get out of the tank, which is a thin-skinned armored vehicle, when you hear machine gun fire bouncing off that tank, that takes a lot of training because you're in the relative air quote safety of an armored personnel carrier. And you're like, I don't want to go out there. There's bullets out there. Well, the problem is there's also RPGs out there. And if one of them hits your APC, you're all dead, right? Right. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing poorly trained and poorly led Russian troops who are not dismounting, who are not getting out of their APCs to protect their tanks. And as a result, they're not fighting as a team. So what we're seeing is that Vladimir Putin's military has certainly been able to design and field some pretty impressive new equipment, but you're not seeing the level of training that allows them to optimize that use of equipment. And there's one last issue that is a big issue that I'm, I'm seeing constant evidence of, which is that the Russians have really failed on the lo- logistics side of things. Uh, and this, by the way, is a traditional Russian weakness. You saw this in World War One. you saw this in the first several years of World War II where the Russians didn't really become truly good at logistics until 1944. And so when you see that 40-mile-long column that some of the media has described, a column of tanks 40 miles long coming down from the Chernobyl salient, you know, which is on the border between Belarus and and, and Ukraine at the eastern extent of the Pripyat Marsh, that 40-mile column is mostly trucks filled with fuel and food and ammunition. And they've been stuck on this small secondary road that's a two-lane road, asphalt road, with mud on either side or swamp or little bridges or, or forest that closes in on the road. They've been stuck there now for four days, burning up fuel right. and not getting the fuel to the frontline troops that are just on the outskirts of Kyiv. This is a problem. This is something that the U.S. Army would never allow to happen because we're really good at logistics. Right,
0: right. And so there's, there's uh, questions about, you know, are the Russian troops that are at the front, are they really getting resupplied? You know, there's, there's been some reports of food and fuel shortages. What about on the other side? You know, um, I think uh, most people, if you had asked them, um, you know, a month ago, if russia invades ukraine you know will will ukraine put up much of a fight to the extent that anyone in america had thought much about it most most people would say no um it, it'll be over pretty quickly what have we learned about the uh ukrainian military uh and their readiness and their level of preparedness i'm not not so much talking about you know these kind of um Information op um, reports of civilians, you know, being carrying machine guns, uh, you know, through the streets of their their towns and cities, but but really more of the military and military fighting, um, and you know what what we know about it so far. How has the Ukrainian military performed so far?
1: Well, given the resources they have, I think they've done a remarkable job. It's important to understand that the that the best part of the Ukrainian military was in the eastern part of the country, in the in the Donbass Basin, facing the breakaway provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. And uh, that's where the bulk of that 200,000 uh, plus active duty force uh, was stationed. They had another 200,000 plus reserves, uh, and they have, as a nation, uh, they can mobilize approximately 7 million people who are fit for military duty. Uh, and so uh, if you look then at Putin's original plan, of course, it was to have that, pardon me, quick lightning strike onto Kyiv and to cut off or to fix those better forces off in the east uh, and prevent them from getting into the decisive uh, fight in Kyiv. And I think what we've seen is that the uh, Ukrainians uh, did prepare. They, they had multiple areas where they were able to slow down the Russian advance take a toll in both tanks and uh, armored personnel carriers and trucks, in many cases, demolish bridges, uh, put up roadblocks, etc. And so they're putting a a pretty decent account of themselves, especially when you think of things like the fact that Kharkiv, uh, the second largest city in Ukraine, at, uh, as I recall, about 1.3 million people, The Outer Ring Road of Kharkiv is only about 13 miles from the Russian border. So you would think that of all places where Russia would not have any logistics problems, it would be facing Kharkiv. Now, the problem, of course, is that if you have a a person who's willing to defend an urban area like Kharkiv, uh, cities completely eat up infantry. the, The amount of Russian casualties would be astronomically high if they were to reduce Kharkiv. Through infantry. So, what you're seeing is they're trying to encircle Kharkiv, they're bombarding it, they're, they're trying to, at this point, they are bringing in artillery and missiles and they are beginning to destroy the city, which, by the way, is the old Russian or Soviet way of war. Uh, they have always used enormous amounts of firepower to destroy their enemy and then have their less well trained infantry come in and, and shoot the survivors and rape the rest. That's what they've done since the time of Joseph Stalin in World War II. Uh, so I think we see this kind of reversion to form.
0: The bombardment of cities. I want to talk about that a little bit because we're starting to see images of uh, Russian fighter planes uh, launching missiles at buildings in urban areas, artillery destroying you know uh, apartment buildings or or other government buildings and we're st- just now starting the last few days to see images of this stuff in the media. It's disturbing. Um, it's kind of shocking to see this kind of level of warfare in a, in a Western kind of Westernized context. Um, very different f- from the images that we got used to seeing in places like Afra- Iraq and Afghanistan. That's not to diminish the human suffering, but just, just to say that the, the visuals are different, right? Um, help, our listeners understand what what would be the military value of you know um, firing artillery at an apartment building or launching strikes against these targets that don't seem to be mili- It's not like they're you know hitting military bases. They seem to be attacking uh, the the city centers and population centers. What is the military or or
1: tactical value of that? I think the first thing that's important for, for people to understand that the American way of war, uh, and more broadly speaking, the Western way of war that's been developed <clears throat> really since technology allowed it to be a thing beginning in the, the late 1980s, uh, this heavy and increasing use of precision-guided mun- munitions, this is really uh, something that's completely different in the history of warfare. Uh, and and people have to appreciate the fact that, for example, during the first Gulf War, uh, when I was on active duty out at Fort Irwin, I was an all-source intelligence center chief for the opposition forces uh, at Fort Irwin, uh, helping to train uh, follow-on forces if the war lasted longer. And even then, the U.S. military had enormous amounts of, of unguided dumb bombs uh, that they could drop on Iraqi positions out in the open desert where there was little to no risk of, of civilian collateral damage. Now, many of those bombs uh, have been since retrofitted with very cost-effective, GPS-guided kind of uh, glide bomb kits that basically turn a dumb iron bomb into a smart bomb. Well, the Russians don't have very much of this. They don't have much in the way of precision-guided munitions. Uh, the, these things are expensive. They're complicated. It's easy for America. We have money and we have technology. It's not as easy for Russia. And so I think the, the issue may simply be the Russians don't have the sort of stocks, of precision guide, guided munitions. And if they did, they're probably saving them for if, God forbid, this turns into a broader confrontation with NATO. And so as a result, they're just doing what they've always done, which mm. is, I'm not going to send in my 1,000 infantry, of whom a lot are poorly trained conscripts, into this maw of urban warfare and see them all get killed or injured by some 60 year old Ukrainian with an AK, you know, shooting at my 18 year old from an apartment block. What I'm going to do is I'm going to level uh, these cities, uh, try to force them to give up, which by the way, rarely works. Terror bombings usually galvanize civilian uh, opposition to the invader. Uh, you, you see very rare instances in, in uh, military history where it had actually caused, a psychological hit on the enemy and, and hasten the surrender. And so what you're going to see increasingly are these images that are being broadcast out of Ukraine that I think are going to continue to ratchet up international pressure on on President Putin. And so it's this grim calculus, right, where every 1,000 Ukrainians who end up dying in these urban centers, who are not fighters, who are civilians, women and children, um, that's Probably worth you know X billions of dollars of additional economic damage to Putin, and increases the odds that he may not survive this this contest uh, as the people around him begin to uh, suffer enormous uh, economic uh, repercussions from his actions.
0: And you're right. And as the Russian economy um, sort of craters as as a result of of sanctions and and ostracization from from the international system, let's. Shift and talk about the strategic aspect of it you mentioned NATO, and you know there's been a lot of talk a lot of loose talk I should say um, in recent days in the media and among our political leaders about nato's role about the european union's role. There are reports that um, some European countries uh, you know are going to send weapons um, there's been some talk that the european union um, wants to uh, aid Ukraine in a formal way or accept Ukraine as a member of the EU. There's now been reports of um, Finland and Sweden being uh, fast-tracked into NATO as a hedge against expansion of the Russian war effort to those countries uh what what is the danger here you know and there's also been i should say uh in my view anyway loose talk about the US and its allies establishing a no fly zone over ukraine as a way to help the ukrainians survive this this russian onslaught i think a lot of americans you know i saw a yougov poll today uh saying you know nearly half of all republicans and democrats think that a, no, a no-fly zone over ukraine is a good idea but i don't i'm not sure that most americans fully appreciate that what a no-fly zone means in practice is is us or allied aircraft shooting down russian aircraft um, what what can you tell us about sort of the larger strategic situation and maybe the risk that this conflict expands outside of ukraine to eastern europe and our allied
1: yeah so that's a lot countries. to bite off so let's yeah. talk about the no-fly zone first uh, unfortunately i think there are a lot of politicians who've been throwing it out uh, there as kind of the the next wave of virtue signaling now that we're moving on from COVID. And uh, they're doing so without any effort to really educate the the public about what this really means. It's, it's kind of like cheap applause, right? Uh, and I think it's very irresponsible talk. So the original no-fly zone that everyone got familiar with was imposed on Saddam Hussein's Iraq in the wake of the first Gulf War where Saddam Hussein was using his military aircraft to kill uh, ethnic minorities that represented a threat to his rule. We're talking about Shiites, we're talking about Marsh Arabs, we're talking about Kurds. And so uh, with the weight of the UN behind us, and with the fact that the Saddam Hussein's air defense system and air force already was severely degraded, uh, US and allied aircraft were enforcing this no-fly zone. Uh, and by the way, Saddam Hussein was constantly trying to shoot down our guys, right? So, so this was like a long, grinding war of attrition that really went clear up until the second Gulf War. Uh, so that's what we're talking about. So, uh, to go back to your one of your original questions, which I never answered about, you know, where's the Russian fixed wing aircraft? Why aren't they flying? Well, that's a huge uh, question, and you're really not seeing a lot of that. And they're not flying for a number of reasons. Number one. They don't have nearly the number of flight hours that we do. The aircraft are not as well maintained. They're not capable uh, as much as we are as flying at night. And the Ukrainian air defense system was never fully knocked out. It's been degraded, but it's still downing Russian aircraft. And so the Russians really don't want to risk their aircraft right now as long as the Ukrainians are capable of shooting them down. So if you were to say, OK, we're going to have F-16s flying combat air patrols over uh, Ukraine— And we're going to tell the Russians, no, you know, any Russian military aircraft that we see, we're going to down. Well, at that point, that is an effective declaration of war on Russia. And the way NATO works, NATO is a defensive alliance. And so if Russia ever shot down a U.S. aircraft, you could argue that that would not, you know, trigger, I believe it's Article 5 of NATO, you know, this mutual self-defense, because we were offensively in... Uh, combat over Ukraine. Right. Uh, and I don't think we want to do that. Right. I mean, that would potentially and we don't, we don't
0: have any mutual defense treaty no, with Ukraine.
1: No, right? no, we don't. And that's the other very important thing that people need to keep their heads. Right. This is tragic. This is terrible. There's civilian deaths. This is an offensive war. Uh, you know, you can go through all, this whole list of things. Uh, We certainly don't want it to expand, though, because Russia is a modern nuclear power. If you think Russia's ground forces have not been acquitting themselves well, you need to think the opposite about Russia's strategic nuclear forces. They have undergone, from my understanding, Uh, modernization of some 21 nuclear systems over the last couple of decades, while America has not deployed any new nuclear systems. And oh, by the way, China is doing this unprecedented and rapid nuclear buildup as well. And so you don't want to do something that could inch the world closer to a nuclear World War III. Just let's not do that, right? Let's leave that off the table. Now, that having been said, there's a lot of things that we can do to aid Ukraine, And frankly, a lot of things that Russia is going to complain about and and rattle sabers about. But okay, that's all right. Um, You know, you go ahead and you rattle your sabers, uh, Putin. You're the one that started this. You're the one that escalated this. There's a lot Uh, of things we can do short of provoking a nuclear exchange. Like continue uh, to ship the Javelin anti-tank missiles in. put in more uh, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. Uh, give Ukraine uh, essentially an unlimited line of credit for lend-lease, which I think the EU has done. Um, And from a strategic point of view, it seems to me that the
0: idea here would be to make this war so costly for Putin and to degrade the Russian position uh, so much in Ukraine that it forces Putin into a negotiated settlement on terms that are not favorable to him. Uh, You know, that People always talk about war and diplomacy as if they're two different things, and and I, I think that's that's wrong. That that that. Uh you know you they say well, we have to stop the fighting and enter into talks hmm. well sometimes you want the battlefield to change uh, decisively in your favor as a way to enter into talks right. in other words and, and that's for example that's something we didn't see in the syrian civil war where uh, you know uh, there were calls to um, authorize the use of the u.s military but only if bashar al-assad used chemical weapons in other words Uh, We couldn't use the military to achieve any of our long-term goals in Syria, which at the time, the Obama administration's stated policy was to remove Assad from power. So you want... uh, I, I think it's important for people to understand just by saying, well, we don't want a nuclear exchange with Russia, but there's a lot we can do to, to uh, degrade uh, the situation for Russia in a way that forces Putin either out of power or forces him to enter into negotiations on terms uh, that he would never choose himself.
1: Right. And, and I think it's also very important to understand where we are right now and the reality of the situation for Putin and the Russian military. Again, going back to the, just geography and numbers. You have a nation now in Ukraine that has rallied, uh, that 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 sees this as a righteous cause. That even ethnic uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians are not looking to Putin to save them. And it is a righteous cause. And, their, and, their country was invaded, right? right. So. Exactly. So, so here, here you now have uh, as many as two hundred thousand Russians, right? Perhaps a hundred thousand. The initial invasion. It's said that another hundred thousand now beginning to come in. Uh, invading a country of some 46 million people bigger than Texas. Okay, so how does that work mathematically? Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't work, right? You you can't occupy that country. It's all predicated on collapsing the government or having some sort of a negotiated uh, agreement with the existing government uh, that gives you what you want. And at this point, I don't see how Putin gets enough of what he needs to, frankly, stay in power. And that's where I'm most concerned. In other words, you have a strong man who has always gotten his way with these very limited actions against Georgia, right, the the, the Chechnya uh, operation, the seizure of of Crimea and the seizure of these two uh, so-called breakaway pro- uh, provinces in the east. And I say so-called because Putin, by the way, triggered that by sending in Russian uh officers and Russian equipment and men uh, to peel those away during the moment of maximum vulnerability as the pro-putin puppet uh, was was ousted from office in 2014 by these huge uh, public uh, demonstrations and so as he was ousted the military had been allowed to decay they weren't in the right location so these locations were were right picking so if you look at Putin's prior successes he's thinking hey you know, I'm like uh, I'm like five and zero. Oh. I'm six and zero. Oh. I've always been successful. I'm going to take this guy down. And now that he hasn't, you know, what's the end game for him? Is he really going to put Kiev under siege? Is he really going to try to starve a city of millions of people into submission? Uh, is it, does he really think that the government is going to then fall? Or are we looking at something like you know the the German siege of Leningrad that lasted multiple years and resulted in millions of deaths, you know, I don't see the Western world allowing that, and frankly, I don't think the Russian economy can sustain that.
0: Right, right, yeah. And that, so it becomes a question of how how long can Russia sustain this? I, you know, and maybe we can we can sort of go out on this note. This is we're a week in now, and so. Uh, I wonder what your your thoughts are about you know the predictions. There was a lot of predictions uh, early on, and, and certainly there 's some indication even on the Russian side. there was this accidentally published Russian victory essay that uh, that was dated the twenty sixth of February, so two days after the invasion began. Uh, that suggested that perhaps the, you know Russia was thinking this would be over in 48 hours. But of course, we know from p- past experience, including our own past experience with the assault on Baghdad uh, and uh, multiple scenarios in World War II, that it takes time. You know, it t- it takes weeks, not days, uh, to to cover territory, to take cities, to move your your troops and your forces up. As Russia enters a kind of new uh, phase in its assault and changes tactics and starts introducing uh, heavy weaponry and artillery and and directly assaulting some of these cities, we're seeing um, Russian forces actually move on the map and and advance, particularly from the south. Um, what what should we expect uh, in week two of this war, and and how um, how does that change maybe? The West's response so far, which, as you note, has been uh, remarkably unified—you so, know, uh, very maybe stronger than expected—certainly from countries like uh, Germany.
1: Um, what what can we expect in in week two? So it seems to me that the, the, this all comes down to maintaining the nation's capital in Kyiv. and the way the Ukrainians do that is they have to keep national morale up, and they have to keep the supplies coming in, and those supplies come across the border. From Lviv, near Poland, uh, and uh, other border crossings in between the border of Belarus, uh, on down to the Carpathian Mountains, so they have this corridor over which they move supplies, uh, fuel, uh, ammunition, new weaponry into Ukraine. So if if you're the Russians and and you're looking at this and you're thinking, how do we make this stop? How do we how do we collapse this government? The Russians have to consider a thrust down from Belarus through the Pripyat Marsh, which is very, very difficult terrain, easily defended and canalized. So maybe you'll see a massive air assault or something along those lines. And they have to interdict those supplies coming into Kiev uh, if they're going to prevent um, the city from being resupplied. And the other important thing to understand is because Ukrainians are rallying to the flag and because they've had conscription, there's a lot of Ukrainian men who have had at least rudimentary military training. The issue is, in a nation without a Second Amendment and without common, uh, you know, high-powered rifles everywhere, you got to get them the rifles to, to have some degree of utility for these local defense forces and to generate uh, problems for the Russian supply lines. Uh, and so it's like a race against the clock. You know, every day that goes by— there's literally more Ukrainians with weapons than there are Russians with weapons. The difference, of course, is the Russians have the, the heavier equipment and the and, and the artillery and things like that, and the Ukrainians are, are lightly armed. And so as time goes on, the position is eroding for Putin and his people without some sort of a masterstroke that cuts off the supplies coming in from the West. And that is something that I'm very concerned about Is I've uh, observed the commercially available uh, websites that'll allow you to look at, at air traffic. Uh, frequently, uh, NATO aircraft will go ahead and squawk on a commercial transponder, and you can see what they are. And just before this interview, I noticed that you continue to see uh, NATO, U.S. and British primarily, intelligence aircraft gathering intelligence uh, on Belarus and on the Kaliningrad Oblast, which is this prize of war that used to be the heart of Prussia. That Russia seized after World War II, and it's uh, sandwiched between the northern part of Poland and the southwestern part of Lithuania. And it's an armed camp with a lot of nuclear weapons, by the way. And so never before in the last several months have I seen so much military intelligence gathering assets looking into a portion of Belarus that suggests to me that the Russians may be considering a bold strike right along the border with Poland, to try to take Lviv. That would be a massive expansion of the war, and I think it would risk potentially bringing in NATO powers. So I think this war is about to enter a a new and more dangerous phase insofar as escalation. And frankly, I think it also shows that the Putin government is under a lot of pressure and that Putin's got to deliver, he and his generals have got to deliver, or his 22-year reign in Russia may be coming to a close. And we'll leave it
0: there for now. Thanks, Chuck, for coming on the show. Uh, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm your host, John Davidson. Our guest has been Chuck DeVore, Vice President at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and a Cold War relic from uh, which, whose, whose expertise is very useful in a time like this when we seem to be facing uh, something that uh, a lot of us thought we would see during the Cold War, but we're now seeing uh, today uh, in Ukraine with Russian forces advancing. You can follow Chuck on Twitter at Chuck DeVore. Until next time, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. I
1: heard the faint voice of reason.